0: Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Buckle up. Beloved, we come to a portion of Scripture that is, by any reckoning, among the most difficult, the most contested. The most challenging passage to interpret in certain ways. Uh, the main point the author is bringing out is very clear, but there are subtleties and nuances that are amazingly wonderful, complex, and difficult, and challenging. Many good, godly men and women come to different conclusions. Again, not in the main point, but in some of the important distinctions. I had a wonderful lunch this week with Kyle T.C., and I told Kyle, I had a similar conversation with Jaden early in the week, I told Kyle that on this challenging passage, I have for a very long time, many years, had a certain understanding, but I had never before had the privilege and joy of exegeting the passage. I told Kyle, if you come on Sunday and you hear something different than what I'm telling you now, that's just the result of the study. I had a similar conversation with my daughter, Rebecca, on the phone. And after 15, 20 minutes, she said, well, I've had my second sermon of the week. (laughs) And if you need a further explanation on that, you can ask one of the Master's University students that are present here with the background behind that. Beloved, this is the word of God. Hear what God says to you and to me in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles it is worthless and close to being cursed. And it ends up being burned. Beloved this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now When I come to passages in Scripture that have different interpretations, even by good, solid men and women, I very rarely elucidate all the different interpretations to you. I just preach the truth insofar as I understand it from my study. And the reason behind this is mist in the pulpit becomes fog in the pew. Having said that, I'm going to make an exception today. Because of the complexity, the difficulty, the challenge, and the intensity of this passage, I do want to go through some of the different options. Now, what we will do is, launching into this, there is a built-in twofold outline in the text. Verses 4 through 6 is the principle that the author brings to bear on his audience, that God brings to bear on you and me. Verses 7 and 8 is the picture to back that up. Now, as I do this, beloved, I'm going to have to assume a certain level of understanding and familiarity with some different doctrines and some different passages of Scripture. Now, having said that, if you're here this morning and perhaps you're not familiar with some of these, that's okay. Don't be concerned about that because one of the blessings, even though God gives us His Word, and we understand that we could spend a lifetime of lifetimes and never exhaust the riches and the depth and the beauty and the sublime truths that come out of Scripture. God is gracious and good to us, and he always keeps the main things plain and the plain things Main. And that is what those of us who are blessed to have an official teaching ministry, that is the challenge we have as well to keep the main things plain and the plain things main. So, having said that, what is the plain, main thing of this passage here? And it is namely this stay true to the Lord. Don't fall away. Don't drift away. Don't neglect so great a salvation. Don't harden your hearts in unbelief. Stay, again, true to the Lord. In this, there is great and eternal blessing. In the other, there is the judgment of fire. So, first, let's look at the principle that we see in verses 4 through 6. And we begin, we see the introductory words from the author 4 in the case of those who have once been enlightened. So, what we're going to do, we're going to have a threefold sub-outline in these first three verses. We're going to answer three questions. The first question is, who are those that we see here in the verse? And second question, what have those done? What have those people done in the past? And then finally, we'll just ask the straightforward question is, what is your point here, author? What's the main point we're to take away from this? So, first, we will ask the question, who are those? Now, as I launch into this, I will tell you there are four options that come when people look at this text. The first option is an unorthodox option, unorthodox position. The latter three are orthodox, held by faithful men and women, and are even orthodox in the sense that they would line up with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. The first Option, which is the unorthodox option, says this that those, the people, the author is describing here are true believers who lose their salvation. They fall away and though they were once born again, though they were once regenerated, though they were once indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they lose their salvation. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this because at our church we are blessed and I don't think this is much of an issue with anyone around this. If you do have questions and maybe this is something you're struggling with, that is also okay. That's the beauty and the purpose of fellowship. Fellowship and discipleship and coming together, letting us reason together from Scripture. I'd love to spend as much time with you after the service or later in the week on this issue. I will say one thing that throughout Scripture, God makes it abundantly clear that his unbreakable chain of salvation from our election through our justification, through our sanctification unto our glorification is clear and taught through Scripture. I'll give you one passage. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ taught in John 10, verses 28 and 29, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So, We will dismiss, at least in this time here, clearly that first option. The next three options, as I indicated, are all orthodox. Option number two says that these are, again, same as the first option in the front end, these are true believers, but they're true believers who suffer loss, but they are still saved yet as through fire. Now again, this is very orthodox. This could be supported doctrinally, theologically by other portions of scripture. Uh, But this is very much a minority position. I only came across one or two commentators or pastors that uh, hold this. But we move to option three, which is a much more prevalent option, which says those people, those in verse four, aren't truly believers. There are many good men, solid men and women, I'm sure, as well, but good pastors that understand, and this is the way one uh, captures. It. He says what the author is doing here is he's talking to a group of intellectually convinced Jewish believers. Remember, the original audience, the reason why this letter is called Hebrews is because he's writing to a group of Jewish people, a Jewish congregation. And there's a second group within this congregation that is this group of intellectually convinced Jewish people, and they're right on the razor's edge. They've come all the way. They know the truth. Uh, This particular pastor would say that even back in the passage we looked at last week, when the author was challenging the congregation because of their spiritual immaturity, you remember that he said, and you ought to be teachers by now. Uh, the person that espouses this option three says that that was spoken to unbelievers and that they know so much they should be teachers but they're not even saved so that position says that the description that we see here in verse four through verse six are describing people that are close to being saved but not saved and then finally the fourth option which is the correct option and I say that with love and humility as much as I can and respect, basically looks at this and understands the author is describing an impossible scenario. He's taking such an extreme example to drive home and strengthen and intensify this strongest warning of all the warnings in the pages of Hebrews. So that is what we look at here. And what we see at the very beginning is the word for, so we understand that he says four. that in verse 4, F-O-U-R, we see the little word for, F-O-R, and that is a strong definitive connection with what we saw before. We will remember that a major theme of Hebrews is the perfect, all-sufficient high priesthood of Jesus. And chapter 5, verse 10, this is a high priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. And the author wants to elaborate and expand on what that means, but in chapter 5, verse 11, he launches into this third great warning where he basically tells the congregation that you're really a bunch of milk-suckling spiritual babies in Christ. And though I want to tell you about Melchizedek, you're not ready for that. You're accustomed to milk, and you ought to even be teachers, as I said before. You can't really handle and digest meet so that is the background that he's talking about here so getting back to the main plain point the plain main point what he had said before was it's time to grow up it's time to not be satisfied with spiritual immaturity it's time to press on to full maturity And what's amazing is here, as we go to verse 4, right after the author had told this congregation that they're spiritual babes and that they can't handle meat, (laughs) the, the author gives the meatiest meat of perhaps the entire New Testament, if not the entire Bible. I can't wait to meet this author in heaven. I think he's a fascinating dude. This is amazing to me. But now back here in the text... One other element that we will see is he says those. In chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, where he launches into this warning passage, four times he addresses this congregation that he knows, this congregation that he loves. And four times you see you, 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 you. Then in verses 1 through 3, verse 1 of chapter 6, he says us. The author puts himself at the same level with this spiritually immature congregation. Verse 3, we. But now we see in verse 4, he says those. So the author is speaking in the third person of a group of people that are outside of and separate from his immediate audience. Now, one other element that will be helpful to us to understand the significance and the distinction of this warning passage among the other warning passages in Hebrews is if we look at how he addressed the audience in the other ones. Chapter 2, verse 1, the author says we must pay much closer attention. Chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, the second warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 10, verse 26, the fourth warning. If we go on sinning willfully, chapter 12, 15, See to it that no one of you comes short of the grace of God. And then finally, chapter 12, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him. So this third warning is different than the other warnings. There's no you, there's no we or us. He says those. Um, There's another part here that appears right at the beginning, but only in the original Greek. And I've never encountered this before. When I was studying, I came upon this Wednesday or Thursday this week, I think Wednesday, and I looked at it, and what the author does is the word impossible, which if you have a New American Standard, excuse me, you see the word impossible in verse 6. The original Greek begins with the word impossible. Right after he says, and this we will do, verse 3, and this we will do if God permits, verse 4, impossible! Exclamation point. Impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened. And I started looking at it because I'm, I'm looking at the original language and I see impossible, but where is it? And then, oh, it's all the way down to verse six. I start looking for variants, if there are variant readings in the Greek. And then I came to realize that there's, everybody's in agreement that basically the original writing of the author begins with impossible. And then he goes through all the rest of chapter, or verse four, five, and six, before he finally gets in the middle of verse six, impossible to renew again to repentance. And it's interesting because The New American Standard takes the word impossible in verse 4 and puts it all the way in verse 6. The English Standard Version takes the entire phrase of to renew again to repentance out of verse 6 and puts it up at the beginning of verse 4. And what's amazing here is the King James Version is actually... Closest to the original Greek. King Jim writes. For it's impossible. Verse 4. For it's impossible. For those who were once enlightened. Goes on from there. Then verse 6. To renew them again unto repentance. Now what's amazing about this. Is this also keys us into. A central meaning and foundation. Of what he's saying here. Impossible. It is impossible. Absolutely fascinating. On a side note. When I was blessed to do the Grand Canyon Christian Leaders Trip, one of my river brothers was a gentleman named Mael. Uh, Mael has a Ph.D. in aerospace engineering. He has a Ph.D. in New Testament theology, and he's a dean of, of theology at a university in Georgia. And it was Wednesday or Thursday of the trip down the river that we were sitting next to each other, and somehow the subject came up. I said, are you kidding me? You think Paul wrote Hebrews? (laughs) Now, one of the blessings of the fellowship was we weren't exactly aligned, all of us on the trip, in every different distinction. So it was tremendous and amazing. And again, I can't wait to meet the author of Hebrews in heaven. The reason why I say that is we know from chapter 2, verse 3, that the author talks to the audience as a group of second-generation believers that didn't immediately hear the gospel from Jesus. And the author places himself in that category. That, by itself, absolutely takes away the possibility that wrote the, that, uh, excuse me, that. Paul wrote this. But the more I spend time in the language, the more I read this, there's absolutely no way this was written by Paul. But... Back here to the main point. The author begins, opens up this passage, impossible, impossible. We'll come back to this in verse 6. So, beloved, the bottom line here is the author is using an impossible scenario to warn the unbeliever, and we will see in verse 7, to assure the true believer, to warn the unbeliever and to assure the true believer. So that's a t- taste of who are those, but now let's ask the question that the author answers for us. Answers for us: What have those done? And what we see in the rest of verse four through the beginning of verse six are five ongoing actions uh, for those Greek students in the Greek in the professor's Greek class. These are all aorist participles. Five past ongoing. actions actions. The first four of these ongoing past action describes a true believer. The fifth ongoing past action describes the impossible. So, he says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, the once that you see there governs all five of those ongoing past actions. The first past ongoing action is have been enlightened. Now, the normal understanding of this, the majority usage of that word enlightened in the New Testament is this is the real enlightenment by regeneration of a believer, of a man or a woman that is adopted into the family of God. For example, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, the apostle Paul writes, God who said Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That was the Apostle Paul. But more importantly, in the immediate context of Hebrews, in chapter 10, verse 32, the other appearance of the word enlightened, unequivocally refers to the believing congregation, the believers in the congregation to whom he is writing. Chapter 10, verse 32, the author says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Now, we understand that when the author is writing, he's writing to this Jewish congregation. When we're reading through these verses, we don't think that, okay, now he's talking to believers. Now, when he goes from chapter 5, verse 10 to verse 11, now he's talking to unbelievers. He's talking to the congregation. Jesus taught there will be tares among the wheat. So there's that dynamic there. So the warnings are always there, certainly for those that would profess to be believers, but aren't believers. But The warnings are there for believers as well. Uh, We will see from this passage that ultimate apostasy of a true believer is impossible. But that doesn't mean true believers shouldn't be warned. That doesn't mean that true believers ought to guard ourselves and our hearts and our behavior so as to not act like those who aren't saved. And then one last comment on this word enlightened. It is true that this can be used in the New Testament to describe the general light of revelation that uh, Christ gives to all the world. For example, John chapter 1, verse 9. But the majority usage again, and especially in the context of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, describes true salvation. The second past ongoing action that we see here in verse 4, and have tasted of the heavenly gift. This tasting he's talking about here is a full experience of the heavenly gift. Uh, we might be tempted to take the physical illustration the author is using and say, well, he's tasting, but he's not really eating. You, know, you know, like the person that, you know, licked the ice cream but didn't eat the cone. Okay, we don't want to expand beyond the way the author does because he d- uses this to describe the full experience. The apostle Peter did the same. In 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3, we remembered this last week in terms of the milk of the word of God. 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, Peter writes, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. But now watch this, beloved, in verse 3. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, if you have tasted the fully experience the true kindness, truly experience the kindness of the Lord. Point here, beloved, is Peter uses this tasting to qualify one as a true believer after he gave the exhortation in verse 2. And similar to the first ongoing action, more importantly, in the context of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, the previous mention of this word taste, talking about the full experience Christ had when he died. Hebrews 2.9, so that he might taste death for everyone. This is a full experience. He was dead. Now, we know, praise God, we rejoice. He did not stay dead, but he was fully dead. So the point here, beloved, in the context of Hebrews, and by virtue of that word, those are people who have truly experienced, the text says, the heavenly gift. And this heavenly gift that they've had a full, true experience of, we've also seen already. Hebrews 2, verse 4, you read the words, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Or to expand out in terms of the gift, the real gift, Paul, Ephesians 2, verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself, it's what? A gift Of God. Or Ephesians 4, verse 7. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, those, this group of people that he's referencing, referring to, have been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift, the third past ongoing action we see in verse 4, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, a personal historic reference, that was the one point prior to the blessed burden I have this week to study this passage. That was the one point that previously I just said there's no possible way I can think of describing an unsaved person, no matter the profession, no matter the awareness of truth, as a partaker of the Holy Spirit. And For years, that was what convinced me. And what we have here, just taking it straight face value, is this is clearly a sharing of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence. And more importantly, again, in the context of Hebrews, the author has already defined this for us. Hebrews 3, verse 1, he said, Holy brethren, partakers of a holy calling. Chapter 3, verse 14, he said, we have become partakers of Christ. So, partakers of a heavenly calling, partakers of Christ, now partakers of the Holy Spirit. Very clear, very straightforward. And, even more wonderfully, bringing us again to this right understanding, the rest of verse 14 in chapter 3, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So one more time, similar to the tasting that we saw before, the partakers is qualified, and it defines for us, it is defined as those who don't ultimately apostasize. In chapter 3, verse 14, I love what Alistair Begg said. He said in a different context than this passage right here, But what he said in a different context was the fullness of the Spirit is fundamental to the reality of Christian experience. It is the birthright of all who have come to trust in Christ, end quote. And the reality is what my beloved brothers and fellow pastors and preachers that would take that option, three, saying this is describing someone that's not a believer, what they would really be saying here is there's some kind of ineffectual call of the Holy Spirit on Or I should say, in my sermon on Hebrews 3, verse 1, I said these words. I said, quote, How is it possible for the sinful worms of earth to be partakers of a heavenly calling? The heavenly calling comes from heaven, and the heavenly calling takes us to heaven. Beloved, we need a word from God, and we need a way to God. And that's why all through Hebrews... the author makes it very clear that Jesus speaks to us from heaven and Jesus takes us with him to heaven. And that takes us to the fourth past ongoing action that we see here at the beginning of verse 5 and have tasted the good word of God. I mentioned before and read 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And again, a true believer is qualified as one who has tasted the kindness of the Lord in 1 Peter 2, verse 3. Or we could pivot and spring off the word of God that we see here in Hebrews 6, 5, back to a previous reference that we saw in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where you may know this well, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The point the author is bringing out here, the context in Hebrews of the Word of God in chapter 4, verse 12, which should be understood by the tasting, the full experience of the Word of God in chapter 6, verse 5, is the power of His Word. It's His creating Word. It's His sustaining Word. God spoke the entire universe into existence. God, Jesus the Son, upholds and sustains the entire universe by the power of His Word and God puts life, spiritual life, where there was no life before by virtue of his life-giving word. The word of God, beloved, breathes life where there is death. And that's why, just by way of side application, we never grow weary of singing the word of God. We never grow weary of hearing the word of God, of studying the word of God, of teaching the word of God. And Remember the teaching, there's an official teaching ministry in different capacities, but from chapter 5, 11, and forward, as we looked at last week, every true believer, young in the faith or old in the faith, you have a teaching ministry responsibility to come alongside less mature believers, to teach the word of God to unsaved family members, neighbors, co-workers, and so forth. So, This group of people have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. This is the author driving home what he's already covered before. Chapter 2, verse 5, the world to come. And the idea of the world to come, the age to come pervades the book of Hebrews. The author wants his audience, God wants you and I to understand that the world of reality will replace this world of shadows. And I would say with all love and respect, again, to my beloved brothers, and and this is very much an intramural discussion. I had mentioned earlier that if you're kind of struggling, you're not sure whether or not a true believer could lose her salvation, I would love to have fellowship. I can imagine there might be one or two of you that maybe on some distinctions and nuances here might have some questions or some challenging thoughts, and praise God for it. I would welcome those. Again, iron sharpens iron. Come, let us reason together from Scripture. But, Having said that, I would say to dilute the language and the meaning of these four activities doesn't do justice to the word if we think this describes unbelievers. You can't, just can't get there. But that takes us to the fifth past ongoing action, and here is where the rubber meets the road. And, verse six at the beginning, have fallen away. Uh, If you have a New American Standard you might see the word then in italics and you'll remember if you see a word in italics it means it's not in the original language. That was an interpretive decision on the part of the NASB translators and uh, with humility and love and respect it was uh, incorrect interpretive decision and have fallen away. It's the exact same grammar, it's just continuing the list of the previous four. This beloved is the impossible scenario. Fallen away. Fall aside, go astray, become lost. This describes a complete falling away. This is the only appearance of this Greek word in the New Testament. However, the Greek word translated as fallen away. However, this word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to describe when the nation of Israel was acting in an unfaithful manner and acting in a treacherous manner. Ezekiel chapter 15, verse 8, God says to the nation of Israel, I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully. Or Ezekiel 20, verse 27, your fathers have blasphemed me by acting treacherously against me. And that unfaithfully and treacherously, that acting is using the same word here for falling away. Notice also, beloved, this is not a falling into sin. This is a falling away from Christ. And the point here is the author could not have expressed the seriousness of apostasy. He could not emphasize the intensity of the warning in stronger or more tragic terms. This is not, this is anything but a phantom warning. This is the meatiest of meaty warnings, the most intense, the most severe. So, we can ask the question when we look at those first four actions describing true belief, and then this last one describing apostasy. What's your point? Apostasy, what's your point here, author? And what we see at the end of verse 6 is the consequence and the cause. The consequence coming from the little word for and the cause coming from the little word since. The consequence, look at the text, it's impossible. Taking the word from verse 4 here. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Beloved, I remind you what I said before. The main point is it's impossible. Adunitas. There's no ability, powerlessness, incapable. This adunitas, this word translated as impossible from verse 4, is very strong, very intense, absolutely definitive. There's no provision whatsoever for compromise. And I was listening to a couple sermons of good men that take that option three position, and at the end, they had to kind of qualify and say, but if you're here this morning and, and you want to repent, this doesn't mean that you can't repent. Again, there's a dilution of the intent here by taking that position. And similar to the previous words we looked at before, this word adunitas, impossible, is used in three other locations in Hebrews, in Chapter 6, verse 18, we'll read, it's impossible for God to lie. Chapter 10, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please, please God. And all men and women of the word would agree that all three of those other usages are absolute definitive without compromise. And when we dilute the passage here, that is incorrect. Now, What some people will do here, and I'll just go inside again, very much an intramural discussion here. This is even within the confines of orthodoxy. They will say that, well, we know that Jesus taught, Matthew 19, verse 26, with men, all things are impossible. With God, all things are possible. And that's speaking of salvation. We can't save ourselves. And they will say it's impossible for a person in this state to repent. But the problem is, it's impossible for any unbeliever to repent, period. God must grant the repentance. That's why, for example, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Another way, another orthodox theological way in which this is used is saying, well, that's really just talking about the unpardonable sin, which is just, denying Christ of just not receiving Christ and certainly if someone rejects Christ they're not pardoned and they don't repent but beloved that's a I would say a radical misunderstanding of the unpardonable sin Um, I don't have time to elaborate on it here but The nation of Israel, when they rejected the Messiahship of Christ on that epic day, it was when Jesus said they committed the unpardonable sin. And it was at that point he began speaking in parables without an explanation to those who were rejecting him and in parables with an explanation to his true followers. Mark 4 verse 25 says to those who have more will be given and to those who do not have what they have will be taken away. In the context there is revelation. So all that to say and again this is very deep stuff skimming over. Would love to interact on this more to basically just attribute this passage here in Hebrews to the unpardonable sin or it's impossible for someone to repent basically makes this entire passage a meaningless truism because there's nothing special, there's nothing significant about it. And I'll give you a small sampling, it's okay, that's all well and fine, so you're talking about why option three is not sustainable, but how about the position that I think the text clearly gives us here, of the impossible scenario, I'll give you Three examples out of many that we can find in Scripture where God, through the human author, uses an impossible scenario in the context of a warning to strengthen and drive home the weight of the words that he's giving. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, Paul says, If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, that's impossible, but do not have love, I am nothing. An impossible situation to drive home the intensity and priority of love. Or Paul in Galatians 1, verse 8. Even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now, maybe the apostle Paul in his humanity on this side of heaven could preach a gospel contrary to that that they have received. But a holy angel, it's an impossibility for a holy angel to preach a gospel contrary. Finally, James, the half-brother of Jesus, James 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of them all. No one of us have kept the whole law for 10 nanoseconds, let alone our whole life. So, beloved, those are just three Other examples from Scripture where God superintends the human author, he bears along the human author to use an impossible scenario to strengthen the warning he's given. You can think at the human level. If you're blessed to be a parent, you know when you warn your children, you warn your child about something that you know he or she's not going to do, that's not a weak warning. That's just driving home the behavior, the thought process. It strengthens your warning. In terms of what this means for us, does this understanding that for a true believer, ultimate apostasy is impossible, does that somehow lessen or weaken or dilute our responsibility? No. We can think of the Apostle Paul in Acts 27. In Acts 27 verses 23 and 24 he was on the ship going towards Rome and a fierce storm came and and the strong rugged sailors were fearful that they might die and an angel of the Lord appeared to Paul and told him that Paul you will appear in Rome before the court and in verse 23 of Acts 27 he says and God says I have given you all the sailors so you won't lose any of them they will be with you and Paul related that to the fellow sailors and did Paul say everybody everybody God said we're going to be safe we're all going to survive so let's just kick back and relax we're safe No, Paul acted even more diligently to make come to pass precisely what God said would come to pass. So also here, when we read this warning, even though an element of it is to assure us of our salvation, that still strengthens our thinking on it. So that's the consequence. And there's also the cause at the end of verse 6. Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God, Of God. You notice here the author shifted away from what he was using most uh, recently in his writing by using the personal name Jesus. The author doesn't use the official title. Christ. The author goes all the way back to how he opened up this magnificent epistle with the Son of God, the supremacy of the Son of God, the creating Son of God, the sustaining Son of God, the redeeming Son of God. And this strengthens and intensifies the blasphemy. And with this language, he just couldn't express the hatred of the Son of God any more vividly. And the text finishes verse 6, put him to open shame, publicly disgrace the shameful character of this apostasy again what's his main warning don't turn away from christ don't fall away from christ and go back to judaism the original jewish audience there's no turning back he's saying what we've seen through the whole letter so far and we'll see even further Why go back to the old when you have the new? Why would you go back to the shadow when you have the substance? There's no turning back, namely the impossibility of apostasy. That's the principle. And then briefly, we see the picture in verses 7 through 8. Now, the question that we saw in verses 5, 11 through 6, 3 was, are you an immature believer or are you a mature believer? The question here in verses 4 through 8 is, are you a believer, a true believer, or are you an unbeliever, a false believer? So we've seen the impossibility of apostasy. In verse 7, it's the blessing of fidelity. There's a basic sweet affirmation throughout this whole letter when the author gives these strong warnings that he expects the Word of God and the work of God in the lives of these children of God to have a positive outcome. That's why, look at verse 9 for just a moment. That's why he picks up after this and says, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. And so that is what the author is bringing out here. His point is to strengthen our confidence and to confirm our assurance. And in verse 7, He says, for ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it. In that opening phrase, basically we see two lands in verse 7 and 8. Both lands receive the rain. There's a land that produces vegetation. and In verse 8, there's a land that produces thistles. And Similar to the Apostle John in his first epistle, John wrote 1 John to give assurance to true believers. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know and have assurance in your salvation. And John wrote that to take away assurance from those that were professing Christ but not possessing Christ. So also here, and that's why he gives a picture of blessing and a picture of judgment. The picture of blessing springs from the reality of true saving faith. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And the true saving faith produces fruit. Your faith bears fruit. Look at verse 7. And this is the first land, the first picture. And brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. The vegetation he's talking about here is the physical picture of the things that accompany salvation that we just read in verse 9. That's coming two verses later. So what the author does here is he gives a physical picture of a field on which frequent rains fall. And the produce of the land of the field is everything the owner would expect and want. The land is a source of joy to the farmer and so receives his continuing care so that it may remain as a fruitful field for years to come. Beloved, that is the picture of blessing of a true believer that the author inserts here right in the middle or towards the end of this magnificent passage. And beloved, I'll say this, a fruitful believer is a better description and a higher commendation than a gifted believer. It's one thing to be gifted, it's a better thing to be gifted. Fruitful. So there's a picture of blessing. Finally, there's a picture of judgment. And what the author appeals to here is the creation and fall account, the literal understanding of Genesis 1 through 11. But I digress. That's on my heart, as you might imagine at this point. But Genesis 1 verse 11 Moses there wrote, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the earth. And it was so. One more element of the digression. God created the plants yielding seed before he created the sun. That's a side topic. But, beloved, back here, that's the picture, that's the background behind here. And what the author is describing here in Hebrews 6, 8 is those who by profession place themselves in a position of Christianity outwardly, but, or outwardly they place themselves in a position of Christianity on the inside, but spiritually speaking, they're still on the outside, pretending to be on the inside when they're really on the outside looking in. They have no root, and when tested, they fall away. They have the rain, but they have no vegetation. They have no fruit. That's why the author says, verse 8, but... If it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. And that's a direct taking out of the truth in Genesis 3, verse 18, that after the fall, God pronounced his curse on the man that would fall on the ground. Thorns and thistles, the ground would produce for him. Adam used it for sin. Adam used the ground, the fruit of of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because he used it as a vehicle for sin, God uses the land as a vessel for judgment as a perpetual reminder. Now, I'll say one thing here. You said, well, you might say, well, okay, you just talked about people that are professing to be true believers, but they're not believers, and this is judgment here. So wouldn't that seem to support option three? And that could, that would be reasonable. However, there is a God-inspired deliberate ambiguity even in the text here look at what it says it says it is worthless it ends up being burned but it's close to being cursed and you can ask the question why why doesn't the author make an absolute unequivocal definitive statement as he did for the picture of the vegetation producing land it will receive a blessing without any qualifications why does he throw in close to being Curse. And again, beloved, it's just in the context that the warning is real. There is a warning of land that receives the rain with no vegetation, yet at the same time, it's cast against the backdrop of this impossible scenario. I will conclude with this. In light of even going to the communion table, beloved, in the final analysis, the greatest mercy of God is seen in his taking the full curse of the punishment that you and I deserve on himself at Calvary. Sin brought thorns. The man Jesus wore a crown made of thorns. Sin caused the sweat that was probably there before the fall to intensify it and increase the difficulty and even the anguish that would come out of the land. Jesus sweated drops of blood. Death came through sin. Jesus tasted death for everyone who belongs to him. The Apostle Paul wrote, Galatians 3, verse 19, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Beloved, that is a gift of salvation that we will remember and commemorate as we worship God in the form of communion. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the newness of life. Thank you, Lord God, for the absolute certainty that you hold on to us. We didn't have the strength, the righteousness to save ourselves in the first place, and we don't have the strength or righteousness to hold on to our salvation. But we praise you and thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit that secures our salvation. Lord God, for anyone here this morning that is not trusting in you alone by faith alone, dear God, draw them effectually to yourself. Adopt them into your family. Make them a new creature in Christ Jesus. May they repent of their sins. Let them figuratively or literally beat their chest and plead for mercy from you. And we thank you, Lord God, that you would receive them to yourself if they do truly come to you. And Lord Jesus, as we now approach the communion table, we remember the great work you've done on our behalf for our joy and ultimately for your glory. Amen.